Scriptures. If you have your Bible this morning, join me at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, it's page 1020. And when we celebrate Easter, we usually focus on one of two days. Either we focus on Good Friday, uh, the day that Jesus uh, was crucified, or we focus on Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And both of those are great days to focus on as we come together to celebrate Easter. But I think sometimes we ought to talk about the Saturday in between. That Saturday in between was a very important day. It was a difficult day. There was a great deal of discouragement. Uh, there would have been a great deal of doubt on that day. The disciples and the followers of Christ, men and women, had given their hearts and souls to Jesus Christ over the last three years. Uh, they had hitched their wagon to his. They were planning on riding that train into the glory land. They were so excited about their attachment to Christ, but then all of a sudden, everything changed that week. It was Thursday night. Jesus was arrested. He was accused, he was tried, convicted, sentenced. He was executed and buried inside of 24 hours. And now on Saturday morning, they're asking some really difficult questions. Is God real? All of these things we've heard in recent years, is, is any of this true? Can God be relied upon? Is there a plan for me? Is there hope after death? On Saturday morning, the disciples and the followers of Christ must have felt like everything was falling apart. Now here's why Saturday is important to us. I think for many of us, we live on that Saturday. We, like those first disciples, like those first Christians, our circumstances don't match our expectations. We thought things would be different. We didn't know we would be going through some of the things that we're going through. And so we ask the same questions. Is God real? Can he be relied upon? Does he care about me? Is there a plan? Is there life after death? And so this morning, I want us to focus a little bit on that Saturday and deal with some of those doubts because of the disciples and the followers of Christ, they found an answer to their question on resurrection morning. And so as we come here on Easter morning, resurrection day to celebrate, I want us to find the answer for our doubts as well. I want us to see how we can authenticate the message of Christ. Jesus has told us so much. Jesus had made, has made such grand promises. And so how can we know, how can we be certain that what Jesus said and what the Bible records is true? And so our goal this morning is to authenticate the message of Christ. Now you're used to things being authenticated. If, if you're pulled over by a police officer and he asks you your name, the second question that he's going to ask is what? Show me your driver's license. Because he's heard your name, but now he wants to authenticate that you really are who you say you are. And so you hand him a Texas driver's license. And he looks at that, and that's a, an official document that would be very hard to reproduce. And so he can tell from that that you really are the person that you say you are. The driver's license is the authentication of the words that you have just expressed. My name is Noel Deer. And, and so we see this in other areas of life. If a scientist 
uh, hypothesizes some new principle. Then other scientists go to the laboratory and they try to prove that. They try to authenticate that. They do experiments to see if what the first scientist said was in fact true. They find some way to authenticate his proposal. So Jesus has said some extraordinary things. How can we authenticate? How can we know that what Jesus said is true and reliable? Well, there are a lot of different ways that we could test that. Uh, scholars would propose all kinds of critical analyses that we could do, how we could test the historicity of all of the Christian documents, and all of those things are good and valuable. But there's one simple test. There's one test that confirms it. There's one test that, that lays aside all of the doubts, and that one test is this. Was Jesus really resurrected from the dead. You see, if Jesus is resurrected, then that casts aside all of our doubts. If, if Jesus really did come back alive by his own power three days after being dead, if that really did happen, you see, then that answers a bunch of other questions. It tells us if God is real, yes, he's real. It tells us if God has a plan, yes, he has a plan. It tells us if there's life after death, yes, there's life after death. If we could somehow be certain of the resurrection, then that would confirm, that would prove that everything else Jesus said was true. If I told you uh, that I was the best golfer in Nacogdoches County. Do you believe that? The best golfer. If I told you not only am I the best golfer uh, in Nacogdoches County today, but I'm the best golfer who has ever been in Nacogdoches County. Now, that'd be a pretty big statement. What if I told you that, that I averaged 350 yards with my three wood every time straight down the middle? What if I told you that every putt inside of 15 feet is a gimme for me? Uh, that, uh, that your birdie is my par. I am the greatest golfer this county has ever known. Now, those are some pretty bold assertions, and you likely wouldn't believe them, and you would be right not to believe them, but, 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 but you wouldn't believe that. If I told you that, you wouldn't believe that unless next week when the Masters are on television... You turn over as they're announcing the winner of the Masters. Some guy that, 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 that people are saying that they've never heard of before has just won the Masters by 18 strokes. And you turn your television on, and there I am putting on my green jacket. Okay, so now that unlikely event would then become the authentication for all of the things I had told you and bragged about with my golfing prowess. And so me winning the green jacket would confirm those other things. Now, Jesus has said some pretty, well, some, some amazing things. Jesus, when he walked on the earth, he said that he and the Father are one. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be the creator of everything, of, of, of the of, of the earth that they were walking on, of the stars that they could see, of the sun that brought heat. He says he did it all. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What an incredible statement. Jesus said he holds people's very eternity in his hands. Jesus said that one day he was going to go to heaven and he was going to prepare a place for his followers. And then he was going to come back and he was going to take his followers to heaven. 
Now, those are some pretty big claims. In fact, let's just be honest, that's crazy talk. <laughs> I mean, have you ever talked to somebody who's just crazy? Uh, pastors, we get a chance to talk to crazy people sometimes, people that make all kinds of statements they are just unbelievable. And the statements that Jesus made, made, frankly, let's just admit it, that's crazy talk. You're God, you're the creator, you, you, you hold eternity in your hand. That's crazy talk, except for one thing. He was resurrected from the grave. If you, you can say those things if you can bring yourself back to life from the dead. And then it's not crazy talk. It'd be crazy talk for you. It'd be crazy talk for me, but not for the resurrected one. Do you see that the resurrection proves the message of Christ? I'm not asking you right now to believe in the resurrection. Maybe you don't. And that's okay for a few minutes anyway. Uh, in fact, the disciples, did you know they didn't believe in the resurrection on Saturday morning? Jesus had promised that he was going to come back alive, but on Saturday morning, they were ready to quit. On Saturday morning, they were giving up. They didn't believe the resurrection. So if you don't believe the resurrection right now, just hang on. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Can you agree that if the resurrection happened, then everything else that Jesus said can be trusted? If the resurrection, if the resurrection, then the rest of the words of Christ we can build our lives on those. Well, I certainly believe that's the case. So how then can we prove the resurrection? If the resurrection proves Christ, how can we prove the resurrection? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, through the years, there have been some very common um, objections that have been raised to the resurrection. Scholars, skeptics have, uh, have pointed to some 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 elements of the resurrection story that, that caused them some concern. And they have said that those elements uh, prove that the resurrection could not have happened. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at some of those objections to the resurrection. I want us to look at scripture, and then I want us to see if we can find some evidences that would convince us of the resurrection. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit who is the convincer of our hearts and minds, but the Holy Spirit uses evidences. And I want us to see if we can identify some evidences that would be sufficient to prove to us that the resurrection happened. In fact, in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, uh, the Bible says, after he had suffered, after Jesus had suffered, he also presented himself alive. So after he died, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing Proofs. So Jesus' resurrection, he presented it as a proof by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. I, I, I want to show you some proofs, some evidences uh, this morning. But we're going to start in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the things that we do from time to time is, is, is a church, we just stand uh, when we read God's word to show special reference to the fact that this is the word of God written for us, true and reliable. So I want to ask you, if you will, to stand with me and let's just read beginning in verse three, first Corinthians 15. So the writer, the apostle Paul says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And so Paul says, this is the most important thing I can say. What is he going to say? that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, another word for Peter, and then to the 12, the 12 disciples, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive today, though some have fallen asleep or died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Jesus, he says, has risen. Please be seated. So what are some objections that people have had to this resurrection story? Well, it seems to be that Skeptics come up with the same three or four objections every time they they do this, every time they present their case. And these objections have been soundly refuted, uh, but they they continue to be rehashed because uh, the skeptics have have got to say something, and this is really all they have to say. Uh, But but let me give you their main objections. And I I read these again this week in Scientific American, which is a uh, you know a magazine, a scientific magazine that you can uh, that you can subscribe to, and so in in the last year there was an article by Michael Shermer, uh, who is uh, who is a skeptic and a journalist and a writer, and so he identified in his article the three reasons we cannot believe the resurrection is true, and and I share this with you because he does a pretty good job of of presenting the the worn out objections to the resurrection argument. And I want you to know, in all fairness, I want you to know what they, what they are. So objection number one, Michael Schumer, Shermer suggests that the witnesses to the resurrection may have lied about it. And so when Paul and Peter, when all these people, hundreds of people in fact, when they say they saw the risen savior, maybe they were just lying. Maybe they just made it up out of whole cloth. So that's objection number one. That's, that would be his refutation to the, to the resurrection story. The guys were just lying. Objection number two, the witnesses may not have seen what they thought they saw. In other words, they may have hallucinated this, uh, this resurrection. Maybe they were, maybe it was a medical problem. Maybe it was some uh, psychological problem. And these hundreds of people just hallucinated these things. And so that's, that's possibility number two. Possibility number three is that the resurrection story could just be legend. It could just be a myth that was uh, concocted uh, centuries after uh, the life and death of Jesus Christ and sort of uh, reassigned back to uh, the, uh, the words of the, of the disciples and the apostles. And so those are the main objections. So what I want to do is I want to show you from Scripture three evidences that I think are convincing that will show us how we can put our trust in the resurrection and at the same time will refute uh, Shermer's um, opposition to the resurrection. So now here's where we're going to start. And this, it's important that we know the starting place. We're going to assume that Jesus was a real person and he lived and died in the first century. Now, Michael Schumer says in his article that he believes that, uh, he says in his article that most, uh, atheists and agnostics and scholars believe that in fact, the life and death of Jesus in the first century is one of the most well-established historical ancient historical facts that there is. So no serious person, uh, uh, academic person, whether they are 
sacred or secular, disagrees uh, with this uh, affirmation that Jesus lived and died in the first century. Now, the rub comes when we talk about the resurrection. And so all historians would agree he lived and he died, but they would not agree that he rose from the dead. So we're going to start with the assumption that he did live, he did die in the first century. There's so much evidence of that, it's, it's clear. And we're going to see if we can prove that we can give evidences that after he lived and died, he came back to life. So evidence number one is this, the empty tomb. The first piece of evidence that we would, that we would present in a court of law would be the empty tomb. And so I go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day according to scriptures. And so Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day he came alive and he left the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And so the empty tomb stands as an evidence that something has happened. Jesus is not still dead because the tomb is empty. Now the empty tomb, and I don't want to get too technical here, but the empty tomb really addresses two historical controversies that, uh, that uh, have something to say about the validity of the resurrection, and it addresses two contemporary or modern objections to the resurrection. So let me show you how this works. Let me show you the, the, the significance of the empty tomb. And so historical controversy number one is that the resurrection was the very heart of the Christian message in the first century. So when, when Peter and James and all the disciples and apostles, when they would preach, they had pretty simple messages back then. If they had three points, you know what they would be? Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. I mean, that was the whole message of the first church. People went around, it wasn't very sophisticated. And so people would go around and they would just, they would say, you won't believe this. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Again, that was the central piece of the Christian message. I wonder sometimes if we've complicated this too much today. That was what they preached. And so if the if the resurrection was the centerpiece of the Christian message, if people were being challenged to leave their family's faith, if people were being challenged to a lot of times be kicked out of their families if they became a Christian, to lose their jobs, to have their lives threatened, I mean, this was a big deal if you became a Christian. And for people to be challenged to do all of those things based on this one fact that Jesus rose from the grave, what would have been the simplest way to refute that challenge. Do you know what it was? Just go find the dead body of Jesus, right? I mean, I mean, all, I mean here's all of, this, all of this instruction, all of this challenge. You need to leave the Jewish faith. You need to embrace Christianity. You need to take all of these risks. You need to suffer all of this because Jesus is risen. It would have been as simple as somebody going down with their cell phone and taking a picture of Jesus in the tomb. I mean, not, not literally, but it would have been as simple as somebody going and finding the body of Jesus in the tomb to dis prove every sermon that the first church preached. And so the empty tomb stands as evidence that the resurrection was real.
because nobody could challenge. You can't preach a crucified and resurrected Savior while Jesus is laying in the tomb. The empty tomb dispels uh, the, the fears of the message being, uh, be, being contradicted. Now, the second controversy that it addresses is the fact that the resurrection was the heart of the conflict with the Jewish leaders. And so a little bit of history. Uh, when the, in the first century, the Jewish leaders, their, their biggest focus was to stamp out Christianity. They hated Jesus because Jesus claimed to be God and they deemed that to be blasphemy. And so they killed Jesus for that reason. I mean, that was their first big act of stamping out the Christian faith is they killed Jesus. And then they, they start arresting and beating and eventually executing people after that uh, who had who were preaching that Jesus was crucified. I mean, sorry, that Jesus was resurrected. And so the Christians are preaching the resurrection of Jesus. The Jewish people who are in charge, they hate that message. Now, what would have been the easiest way for the Jews to have put a stop to this Christian faith? Well, just produce a body, right? The Christians could not have continued to preach. The, the Jews would have won the battle if they could have only produced the body of Jesus. The empty tomb, the empty tomb shows us that they didn't have, they didn't have any way because, because Jesus was resurrected. They could not refute the message. And so if we look at these historic controversies, we see that the empty tomb uh, it says it's very strong evidence of the resurrection of Christ. But let me look at two modern objections very quickly. So the first one is this, that the witnesses were hallucinating when they believed that they saw the resurrected Christ. Remember, Shermer suggested that in his Scientific American column. So first of all, the whole idea that, uh, that they were hallucinating is, uh, is nuts on its face, right? I don't know a whole lot about hallucinations, but uh, th this was over 500 people who saw Jesus on multiple occasions over six weeks uh, in, in different locations. They, they ate with him, they dialogued with him, they touched him, they traveled with him. That's not the way hallucinations work, right? They, they don't last six weeks. They, they don't involve hundreds of people who are seeing the same thing and they're not a tactile kind of experience. It, it, it couldn't have been a It couldn't have been a hallucination. But even if it were, what would have been the easiest way to refute the hallucinated belief of all of these people? Just produce a body. You, you see the theme here? See, if, if, if those people were hallucinating, you can't hallucinate the body out of the grave. And the empty tomb tells us that it wasn't a hallucination. Had they just been hallucinating, the body would have still been in the grave. Now, there's another controversy very similar to that, but uh, I mentioned this because Shermer does in his article. Uh, what about the witnesses who claimed that Jesus rose from the dead? What if they really meant that Jesus rose spiritually? Maybe they didn't really mean that Jesus came back to life. Maybe they just meant that Jesus rose in their hearts, you know, some sort of mystical experience. Well, first of all, that goes in the face of all the early records we have of what these people said. They, they said that Jesus was there. And, and this isn't an opinion. I, I know that um, Andre and I were at, at a concert Thursday night. He sat in the row behind me. And before we got started, I turned to Andre and said, well, how many people do you think are in the room? 
and I gave my estimate and he gave his estimate. We were a little different. Um, and we were probably both wrong. I mean, I, uh, but we were just guessing, we were speculating. And, and so we, we might've been, we might've been way wrong perhaps. I, I don't know how many people were in the room, but, but when these people were saying that they saw the resurrected savior, this wasn't a speculation. Either Jesus was alive or he wasn't alive. And so, so these people, well, if you were to say that these people just had a spiritual experience of the resurrected savior, what would have also been true? There would have been, there you go. There would have been a body in the tomb. You see how the empty tomb dispels all of these uh, objections to the resurrection. The empty tomb uh, is proof, is evidence, great evidence that the resurrection is, is real. Now, let me quickly give you a second evidence, and that is the evidence of eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. You know, our whole system in America of jurisprudence, uh, how we determine if somebody is guilty or innocent, how we determine if something is true or false, is, is this, that if, if there are two witnesses, and those two witnesses say the same thing, that they saw the same thing. I saw Rick Scarborough hold up a convenience store, okay? And if, and if they both saw the, say they saw the same thing, and their reputation is unquestioned, and there are no contradictory um, testimony. There's not somebody else who's saying, no, I, I saw somebody else hold up the convenience store. And if there is corroborating evidence, then those two witnesses are enough to establish something as a fact. You understand that? If you have two witnesses saying the same thing and those witnesses are reliable and there's no contradictory witness and there's corroborating evidence, then two witnesses establishes it as a fact. Well, when we come to the resurrection, we don't just have two witnesses. We have hundreds of witnesses who prove to be reliable with no contradictory testimony, with corroborating facts. The eyewitness accounts prove the resurrection of, of Christ. Uh, I, I want to just reread the verses we read a moment ago and just walk through them a little bit at a time. Verse 5, because here we see a list of these, of these witnesses. Verse 5 says, And he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and then to the 12. So he, he, he appears first to the people who knew him best. So there's no question about whether it was really Jesus or it was some other guy. These people knew him best. And so he appears to those. And we know something about those appearances. They touched him. They ate with him. He fixed them breakfast one day. Okay, that's not a hallucination. And then it goes on, verse 6, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them were still alive, but some had fallen asleep. Now, why would he even say that most of them were still alive? What Paul, the writer here, is suggesting to the, to the Corinthians, those are the recipients of this, is if you don't believe me, you just go ask these guys. Because they're still around, and they'll tell you they saw with their own eyes, they heard with their own ears, Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And so he says, these witnesses, you can still go and question them. And then he says, this is amazing to me, verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to the other apostles. Do you know who James is? James was Jesus' brother, half-brother technically, 
Uh, James's mother was Mary, or his, his father was Joseph. Now, what did James, the brother of Jesus, think of Jesus uh, before the resurrection? Do you know? He thought Jesus was a fraud. He, he didn't follow Jesus. He rejected Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought when Jesus said he was a creator of the world that, that Jesus was just crazy. He thought, he thought his brother was nuts. But something happened. And if you look later in the book of Acts, the story of the first church, you see that now James is one of the boldest proclaimers of Jesus as the Messiah, one of the, one of the strongest leaders the church has. What happened between James thinking Jesus is nuts and James thinking Jesus is the Messiah? You know what happened? The resurrection. What would it take? I, mean, I think this is such strong evidence. Raise your hand if you have a brother, All right? A lot of you. Okay, now be honest, unless your brother's sitting next to you. What would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was the Messiah? <laughs> what would he have to do to convince you that he was the Messiah? And you know, Jesus had been the goody two-shoes in the family for a long time. You, can you imagine what kind of sibling rivalry there would be if your brother were Jesus? never gets in trouble, never. What would it take for your brother to convince you he were the Messiah? Well, i tell you what it took James. He saw Jesus come back alive. I don't know if you could have much stronger evidence than that. And then you take the apostle Paul, look at the next verse, verse eight. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me, to Apostle Paul, it was sometime later, that's uh, the reference there, born at the wrong time. These eyewitnesses, and, and Paul's a good example. When they saw the resurrected Savior, they abandoned their lifestyle. They, they changed everything. They dropped it all. They risked everything to follow him. It was such an, an amazing thing to see somebody who had come back to life. And so the Apostle Paul, let's just use him as a, as a good example. Well, let's start with Peter, Cephas, Peter. Cephas allowed himself to be crucified upside down. He hung and bled to death and died on the cross. You, you know why? Because he said that Christ had been resurrected and they told him to take it back and he said no. And they said, we're going to crucify you. And he said, if... If I have to take it back, I can't. I saw it. Crucify me then. You think he really saw that? So the apostle Paul, he was a respected Jewish religious leader. He had a great career. He had a lot of authority. He was set for life. He abandoned all of that and lived a, a hard life and a lonely life and a painful life. And why did he abandon it? Because he said he saw the resurrected Savior. First, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not going to read through the verses. I'm running out of time. But it's just a long list of how many times Paul was beaten and how, how many times Paul was almost killed. All because Paul was saying that he saw the resurrected uh, Savior. Now, somebody might say, well, what if those people were lying? What if the... What if the followers of Christ who claimed that Jesus rose from the grave, what if they were lying? Well, all evidences are that they were not. You don't give up everything so that you can tell a lie. You don't give up your life 
You don't at the pain of death continue to lie. These people, they said it and they stood behind what they said. Now you might say, well, pastor, I think people lie. I think people die for lies all the time. Somebody will come up to me after church, and, and, and you won't do this now because I'm addressing it, but somebody would have said this, Pastor, what about the Muslims? And, and there are many Muslims who will strap on a suicide vest, and they will forfeit their lives for the, some crazy hope of virgins in paradise or something like that. Those people are giving up their lives for a lie. Well, yes, but they're not giving up their lives for their own lie. See, people die for lies all the time, but they don't die for lies that they know are lies. Those people strapping on the suicide vest, they, they firmly believe that, that that is the truth. These men and women, they weren't dying for something they believed. They weren't dying for something that they had been taught. They died for something they said they saw with their own eyes. They knew if this was a lie or not. And people don't die if they know it is a lie. Somebody might say, well, perhaps this is just a legend that these people said what they said and saw what they saw. Well, in academic circles, historians, sociologists, anthropologists have determined how things become mythologized. And uh, without going into a lot of detail, um, whether they're, they're sacred or secular, uh, they have determined that this cannot be a mythology. Uh, this cannot be a story that was imposed back into history. Uh, the reason is because the claims were made too early. The literature was written too quickly and the number of sources is too great. We have, we have sources that go back almost to the time when it happened. This isn't something that was, that was uh, created 100 years later or 300 years later, this is something we know was said. You can choose to believe that all of those people were lying, but there's no question that hundreds of people at least said with their mouth that they had seen with their eyes the resurrected Christ. No question at all. And so the eyewitnesses uh, established the truth. Now, number three, very quickly, the third proof is the spread of Christianity. Uh, historians have said that the rise of the Christian faith uh, is one of the greatest wonders in history. Uh, think about how Christianity started. It was just a ragtag bunch of people. It, it wasn't a very small, it wasn't a very large group. It was very small. Uh, they had no money. They had no power. They had no authority. They were defeated. Their leader, Jesus, the leader of this movement, had had been executed, so they had no leader. Jesus left no instructions before he died about what they should do after he was gone. He left no successor. He didn't appoint a successor. I mean, I mean the chances that these, that this just motley crew of, of, of disciples, the chances they had of, of, of their faith surviving even a few years were, were small. And then on top of that, the Jewish people were committed to stamping out the Christian faith up to the point of killing people. And then the Roman government also said it was illegal to be a Christian because you had to first say Caesar is Lord. And so the Roman government began to hunt down Christians and kill people who ascribed to the faith. So in that environment, no money, no authority, no leader, no instructions, uh, persecution by two different groups, 
Christianity turned the world upside down in 200 years. It is just, just to go back and look at the history, I wish we had more time. they, They turned the world upside down. How could they have done that? How did these meek uh, believers gain the boldness to stand before the throne, the human government, and say that Christ is the way? Well, it's because they saw something that was amazing, that Jesus rose from the dead. I read an article Actually, yesterday, this is uh, yesterday's uh, Wall Street Journal, and uh, there's an article called The Easter Effect. And I mean, we we get our authority from Scripture, but I thought this was interesting. This is the Wall Street Journal, which we don't generally turn to for sermon material. But the, the author, George Weigel, asked the question, how in the world could the world have been turned upside down by this uh, small group of of meek and, and timid followers that had no resources and no, no leader. And he, he answers the question. And I just want to read to you some of the things that he said. Uh, he begins uh, this way. How did a ragtag band of nobodies from the far edges of the Mediterranean world become such a dominant force in just two and a half centuries? And then he answered the question by saying what happened to them was the Easter effect. That's the title of the article, the Easter effect. And what he means by the Easter effect is these people saw a man come back to life. That's what emboldened them. He goes on to say there is no accounting for the rise of Christianity without weighing the revolutionary effect on those nobodies of what they called the resurrection. Their encounter with the one whom they embraced as the risen Lord. He goes on, he presents a whole nother evidence for the resurrection that I didn't have time to cover, but I'll mention it quickly. For the Jews who were the first members of the Jesus movement, nothing was more sacrosanct than the Sabbath, the seventh day. The Sabbath was enshrined in creation. The Sabbath's importance as a key behavioral marker of the people of God had been reaffirmed by the Ten Commandments. And so what, in their day, the worship day was Saturday. Sunday was the first day of week. That's like our Monday. And so I won't read all this to you, but the Christians actually, they were so amazed at the resurrection that they changed their worship day to Monday. I mean, to Sunday, which was their Monday. That's why we worship on Sunday to this day. And, and they, went, they went against their whole culture in doing that. And then he closes by saying this, without the Easter effect, without these people witnessing the resurrection, There is really no way to explain the rise of Christianity in the West. You see, just the rise of Christianity is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let me wrap up by saying this. There is great evidence that the resurrection happened. And if the resurrection is true, then these three things are true. Number one, Christianity is the true religion. Every other religion And there are many religions in this world. Every other religion is based on a philosophy or based on some subjective experience or based on a hope or a wish. But Christianity is unique because our faith is based on an event that happened, that can be verified, that can be authenticated. Christianity is the true religion. The second thing we know is that there is hope for life after death. 
We read a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15. If we had time, we'd read the rest of the chapter, which tells us that the point of the resurrection is so that we can have eternal life. Life is not over at the end of this life. It is only the beginning. Life goes on, and the resurrection of Christ tells us that. And then finally, if the resurrection is true, then the gospel is the way to true and eternal life. Jesus said the only hope is to surrender to me and trust what I did on the cross. Listen, I want to challenge you, church. If the, if the Holy Spirit has used this, uh, these evidences to help convince you of the truth of the resurrection, then you, like those first disciples, have no choice. If Jesus is resurrected, then we must embrace him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we must embrace him. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, surrendered your life to him, maybe you've been in church in and out for years, but there's never been a time when you've just nailed it down and said, I trust Jesus. I surrender to him. I want him to, to forgive my sins and I just offer my life to him. Then because of the truth of the resurrection, today should be the day that you do that. We're going to stand and sing and just celebrate in a moment. And there are two ways that you can respond to this invitation. One is to come forward while people are singing. Uh, I'll be down here. Other ministers will be down here to receive you. And we'd love to talk with you just personally and privately about how you can respond to this message. You can also indicate this on the card that you held on to a little earlier. On the back, there are several decisions you can tell us that you've made today. The first one is this. I made the one-time decision to put my faith in Christ and surrender my life to him. And you can mark that on here. Hold on to the card. You'll get some more instructions in a moment. And you can make your decision this morning in either of those two ways. Let me ask you to stand and bow your head. I want to pray. Father, lead us now to respond like the disciples and the first followers of Christ responded when they were convinced of the resurrection. It was life-changing for them. Let it be life-changing for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing together.